It's my uh, privilege to be with you this morning as we continue on our study of Revelation. Um, if you will start turning with me to Revelation 15, we're going to be uh, looking at verses 5 of chapter 15 through the end of chapter 16 today. G.K. Chesterton once said that uh, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange visions, he saw no creature so wild as one of his commentators. <laughs> And so it is with a little trepidation that any of us come to the book of Revelation because the history of interpretation is so varied and there's so many different views presented across uh, Christian tradition and history. And those views are even represented in the breadth of this room. And so we come very humbly today uh, to this text. Uh, There are many controversial things. And I hope to explain and give you an interpretation, uh, interpretive framework that will guide you. But know that this is cautious, and, um, and we are very careful and slow in interpreting um, the book of Revelation, especially as we get to chapter 15. And I learned some great wisdom from a Mississippi road sign this fall. Um, I, was, I was traveling through northern Mississippi, just down some two-lane roads that there wasn't much on it except a few, few crossroads, and there were a whole lot of churches. There was a church seemingly about every hundred yards and every time you would come up on a church, there would be a yellow caution sign that just said church. And I noticed about five or six of these. And as I continued to go down the road, though, um, I came up on one church, and all of a sudden there was a yellow sign, and it said slow church. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know if that was just the competing church down the road that put that up just to uh, take a knock. <laughs> but it was probably good advice. It was good wisdom just that we need to go slow when it comes to the church and uh, that we need to be very careful, and especially where the church has been in conflict, uh, where there are differing views. And so we come with uh, great humility this morning to Revelation. But let's orient ourselves. Uh, Sandy gave you an outline last week, just a very brief outline that's very broad in general. It's not specific, but you'll see where we are located today because it is very important to gain uh, your location in the book. But we are talking about the seven angels that pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath in chapters 15 and 16. This is after we've had Jesus opening seven seals, after we've had seven trumpets, and then we have another set of seven, the third and final set of seven that John gives to us as part of God's revelation. And one of the big things that we have to do when it comes to interpreting this book is locating ourselves within it, asking ourselves, okay, where are we? And then what is the purpose of this book? Now, many of you are familiar with a lot of leadership literature, your your leaders and businesses all around the city. So you're familiar with Jim Collins and uh, Franklin Covey. And some of the principles that these guys use, you know, we all read them and go, gosh, why didn't I write that? Uh, You know, put first things first. You can make millions off saying things like that. (laughs) Uh, You know, make the main thing the main thing. Uh, I mean, they're, they're completely phenomenal, and they've revolutionized many of your lives, and they help us tremendously in our businesses and our structures. But this is not rocket, scientists, rocket science, and those principles apply very plainly also to when we do biblical interpretation. And so when it comes to biblical interpretation, we have to put first things first and make the main thing the main thing. And that is we have to focus on what was this passage intended to do. And so I've given you this purpose here and if you'll read it with me here on your outline, that we are encouraged to continue to serve Christ faithfully because he is the ascended king who judges the actions of human beings in the present and who will return to judge and restore his creation in the future. Now just remember very quickly what the situation of these churches were. These are the churches of of Revelation 3. They are the churches who were being persecuted. Now, the message they had received was that Jesus was king, the resurrected Lord who, was, who ruled over all the nations of the earth, and that peoples from every tongue and tribe would come and stream before him to praise and worship. Now, that was the message they had received and believed. But then ask what the reality of their lives was. Did it look like Jesus was the reigning Lord and King? Not at all. It looked like Rome was the reigning lord and king. Because Rome was oppressing them, putting some of them even to death. They were making life extremely difficult economically for these Christians. And so John, as a pastor, had to write something meaningful 
to these Christians in order that they would persevere. And so that is our big launching point. And I would say that is what John's purpose is, is to encourage these churches that were just beleaguered by all the frustrations and all the hardships that were being pressed upon them. And so he's attempting to encourage them and motivate them to continue on in their faithful service. And so that's our point of departure for the morning. And we'll begin reading our text now, starting in Revelation 15, verse 5. And we will read the first section through 16.1 and then pick up the rest as we, get, as we come to it. After this, I looked in heaven and... After this, I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with, wrath, with, with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Now, once we've oriented ourselves with the main purpose, we're going to look at this, uh, at this section about the seven, uh, the seven bowls of God's wrath into two parts. And the first part is simply about this, that the prayers of the faithful usher in the plagues that prosecute God's judgment on the pagan world. Now, that sounds like a lot. (laughs) But the prayers of the faithful usher in the plagues that prosecute God's judgment on his pagan world. That's very clear because these seven bowls have a highly symbolic and significant meaning for us. And so we're going to look at the symbolism of the seven golden bowls, and we'll also be talking about the symbolism of the sanctuary. So we have two things from this first section that we're looking at. But first, the significance of the seven golden bowls. John has used this terminology for us before, and some of you may already be recalling it, that the seven golden bowls, this is not their first appearance, that you have golden bowls that appear in actually Revelation 5 in in verse 8. And you also find them in chapter 8. But what the golden bowls were earlier for John in his book is that the golden bowls were filled with what he says was was incense. And that incense was the prayers of the saints. And so you have those four living creatures, those strange creatures that John uh, explains to us, were there before the throne of God, and they were holding golden bowls. And the elders... They were holding golden bowls, and they were all bringing the bowls filled with incense, which he explains was the prayer of the saints, to God. And it was rising up before him as an offering. And so these are the prayers that were, uh, that were lifted in the golden bowls. And then we find this theme continuing in chapter 8, where the golden bowls again are the incense, they're the prayers of the saints. And so now John takes this theme, this very theme of the golden bowls, And he explains that these bowls are now no longer filled with incense, that is a prayer, but it's now filled with the wrath of God. It's going to be poured out on the nations. In other words, he's saying that the prayers of the saints, the prayers of God's people, have now been fulfilled in judgment. Now, that might be a very difficult concept for many of us here, thinking of prayers actually resulting in judgment. But if you remember one other passage from Revelation 6, we learn the content of the prayers of the saints. And we find that when the saints are in heaven, they weren't exactly just content and playing hearts and floating around with wings. They didn't have that vision of things. But actually what the saints were praying in Revelation 6, what those bowls of incense were, where they were saying, God, how long? How long am I going to be here until I am vindicated? You see, what these saints in heaven were looking for was a world made right. Yes, they were in God's presence. But there is still a certain level of godly discontentment going on for those saints. Okay? Because what they're longing for is their resurrected body. They're longing for the final consummation of all things. And that is the point of what God is doing in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is nothing less 
than God's righting of all the wrong in the world. It's his disposing of evil through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, and through his final consummation of everything. And so these these saints are asking, how long, God, until you do it? How long will it be? And in these bowls of wrath being poured out, God is saying that it's near, that I'm now answering the prayers of the saints, that I'm coming to vindicate you and to make it right. And now this is the way that any good justice works. Justice doesn't only repay, but it also makes things right. I grew up in a neighborhood that had a fat bully. Some of you may have heard me told this story before, so just bear with me. But the bully terrorized me and several of my other friends. And it was just, it was just horrible. It was just difficult to do anything in the neighborhood without the bully's oversight. And so, just sometimes out of exasperation, I would, you know, go to other parts of the neighborhood and find some other kids to play with. And there was one particular kid, and he was just kind of the odd bird. He marched to a different drummer, but every once in a while in exasperation, I would go play with Danny Hoden. It's like, okay, I'm going to Danny Hoden today. I can't take the bully anymore. So one night, Danny and I were playing, and I remember that the bully and his gang came around the, the corner, um, and they came, and they were making fun of Danny. And uh, they threw something at us, and something got thrown on Danny, and, you know, we're all but eight years old uh, at this point. About 20 minutes later, and the bully left, uh, Danny said, come on. Well, where are we going? He said, just come on. So we start walking around the neighborhood. Well, I follow Danny to the bully's house. He marches right up to the back door. He knocks on the door. The bully's mother comes to the door and answers. He says, can I see Chris? And she says, yes. She goes and gets Chris. And Danny then proceeds to give him a punch in the stomach and then the most awesome explosion of blood from the nose with a nice uppercut. And I know that I shouldn't still celebrate this as a Christian. You know, I should be against non, you know, I should be for nonviolence. But, I mean, it was just unbelievable because it's like the year of Jubilee for me. You know, the oppressor was broken. I mean, here I am, you know, it's, ah. Because there was a reckoning and things were made right that day. Not only was there repayment for all the oppression that we had suffered, but, you know, things got significantly better in the neighborhood. <laughs> the bully was no longer that big a deal because everyone knew <laughs> he had been put on a leash. He had been put on notice. <laughs> he no longer terrorized us. And so that is what good justice does. Not only does it repay, not only is it retributive, but it makes all the wrong right. It corrects the situation. And that's what God's covenant does. That's what He does in Jesus Christ. Is He comes to repay, but He also comes to make it right. And so God's judgments are for the salvation of His church. And so when we read these judgments of God, these bowls of His wrath, though they are filled with terror and horror, terrific images of His anger, they are of the greatest consolation and comfort to us. And that is what John is wanting to communicate to us. And that's what God wants to minister to our souls and to our spirit. So I have here for you that the saints are longing for redemption where the world would be made right. And just the practical question for all of us is, are we with the program? Are you with the saints and longing for a world made right? The saints are crying out in heaven, discontent, because they want the final consummation of things. They want the world to be as it should be. They want the creation restored to what it was intended to be. And so my question for you is, are you on the same page with them? Is that what your heart is longing for? Now, we have very many distractions in this life and things that can consume us. And the things that can consume us and preoccupy us are many. But the ones that are just our particular struggles, you know, are you more preoccupied by the secretary, and by the idea of flirting with her, and even though it might be fairly innocent, of sliding in a few words that might be interpreted just the wrong way, you know, so you can just create a fantasy in your mind about what it might be. Is that what's driving you? Is it just your sexual needs that are just absolutely pulverizing you and compelling your life? Or is it the moment where you might be able to sneak off and get to the Internet, and you might be able to look at the things there, 
And even though you might have one of those blockers, you figured out how to get around it. and Nobody's going to know. And that is what consumes and compels your day. Or is it your career? And that constantly before you, even though this can be a good and wholesome thing to be successful and to run business for the glory of God, but constantly before you is the idea of progress and meeting the right people and having the right things in order to impress the right people. Making the progress in your career that you need to make in order to be important, in order to be someone, in order to count. And so we have these things, sex, money, power, that just typically can dominate us. And while all of them are not wrong, certain manifestations certainly are, while all of them are not wrong, we have to ask ourselves, are we on the page, though? Are we longing for a world made right? That is what this Bible is about, is a world made right, a restored creation. And so center your thoughts on the main purpose, on the main thing, and allow that to drive and compel your life. Now, secondly here, uh, after the seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, out of verse 7, we find in verse 8 that there's a strange saying that God gives the golden bowls to the angels, and then the angels are sent out of the tabernacle. They have to leave the presence of God. And it says that smoke fills the tabernacle, and you get this terrific imagery of judgment and anger and of God just furious. And we have to ask, why were the angels exiled from God's presence? And again, this is a ministry of comfort to us. And I have here for you um, that the exile of the angels from the sanctuary marks the nearness of the end of our exile from God's presence. When When God's judgments become active, this is a great consolation to us. Because what it means is the end is near. As soon as God's judgments are active, that we can take great hope. It's not to be a sign of cynicism and unbelief, but it's supposed to be a sign of comfort for us. We are to live with great expectation of Jesus' return. Now, practically when I deal with myself on this issue, and I ask, what is the real value of knowing that Jesus is going to return? You know, and and I imagine that I feel the way many of you do. Because you come to books like Revelation, and it just seems to be a knotted mess. (laughs) I mean, really. You know, you try to read this thing, and it's just absolutely a nightmare. It's like, you know, it's a gobbledygook. Or maybe y'all don't feel that way. (laughs) It's just so tremendously difficult. And so we all kind of end up just kind of going to agnosticism and just say, well, I know Jesus is going to return, so it doesn't matter. You know, (laughs) he's going to come back, and I'll just let him sort it out. And that's where we kind of end up. That becomes the practical value of prophecy. Is it just, up? Ah, he'll sort it out. But is there something more for us here? And I think so. I think we have two suggestions here for you. Look on your sheet here. That John spoke of the future for activation of a persevering faith, not prognostication about future events. That John has a real purpose when he speaks about the future. And it's not so that we can try to figure out every little step that is going to happen between point A and point B. I think more what John's purpose is, is that in order to activate a strong and persevering faith. Please remember, he's a pastor writing to churches that are beleaguered with persecution and suffering. And so a lot of explanation about events that were detached from their present world would not have been very helpful. But he's trying to encourage them that God's judgments are currently active and therefore they are to be activated, that they are to live godly lives. Please look at the end of of chapter 16 where we have Jesus speaking in verse 15. Jesus says, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. And I would say to you that these words of Jesus are crucial for our understanding of how we are to take prophecy because it is intended to activate us, that we would present ourselves as a, with a godly life before our king, that that would be the point. So that's our great call, and that's the purpose of prophecy. But then secondly, that John spoke of the future to inform believers with confidence of Christ's certain victory, 
not explicit coming events. John is speaking in generalities here of the rule and reign of Jesus, of which he is absolutely certain. Now think about it. It's pretty impressive. This man named John, he had been alive for a very long time now. He was an apostle. And then he had been exiled after a long, difficult ministry where he combated all kinds of heresies. He is in Ephesus and he's exiled by the Roman government. He's put on this Isle of Patmos. And it looks like his king doesn't reign and rule squat. Who is your king? That would have been the question of the Romans. What does he lord over? What does he rule? But John is very confident that despite appearances, that Jesus rules over all the nations, that he is the one who reigns over all things. And so John gives this vision, he gives the prophecies, in order to assure these people of that very thing. That Christ's reign and victory is certain. And so that's what I would say the, uh, the basic vision of prophecies are and how they are to operate in their lives. To call us to godliness and to give us the certainty that Jesus rules and reigns. He's over all things. So there's a tremendous value for us. Now, so that's the significance of the seven golden bowls. That the prayers are fulfilled in the active judgments of God. And we'll talk about when those judgments come into play in just a moment. But we need to talk first about the significance of the sanctuary. If you look in verse 5, you'll see that there's some very strange language called the tabernacle of the testimony. It says the tabernacle of the testimony, that that is where God was dwelling in the heavens. Now, the tabernacle of the testimony is an Old Testament illusion. That is where God, during the Exodus, dwelled with his people Israel. And it is from that tabernacle that God related to Israel. Because in the tabernacle, as you all know, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. That is where sacrifice were, were offered there in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God's mercy was extended to the nation. And also, in the Ark of the Covenant, you had the Ten Commandments. That was the rule of life for the people. How they were to respond in gratitude to their king. And so you have these two main things that were to operate in the people's lives. You have God's grace given to them, his benevolence, and you then have their duties given to them right there, all in the tabernacle. This was all of their covenant relationship with God, symbolized right here in the tabernacle. And what's being said in this vision of heaven, that God is in his tabernacle, and that we're still relating to him in the same way, based on mercy, based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is from this tabernacle that God is infuriated with the nations. And he's infuriated because they've broken his law. And that they said that his law is constraining for their lives. That his law is actually not good. And all the prophets speak in one unison voice about this that we call good evil and evil good. And that's the tragedy of our our humanity. That that's where we have gone and where we have come. And rather than seeing God's freedom in the law and how he desires to restore us to what we are intended to be and to bring us into wholeness and newness, we have said that the law is not good and we've sought after our own devices and our own directions for life. And we do that in all kinds of areas. We do that in our sexual lives. We do that in our relationships. We do that in our business. And we say it's better to do it this way because X, 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 and X. And we defy God's law and we defy His mercy in our lives. We turn against it. And God is infuriated by that. And He's infuriated by those who have denied the testimony of Jesus. And so this is the basis of His anger. is the denial of His mercy. A denial of His covenant and a turning away from it. And so, oftentimes when we think of the judgments of God, we are a bit embarrassed as Christians. Is it right for God to be this mad? Can He possibly get that angry and still be holy? Absolutely. And John doesn't shy away from this at all. He pictures the presence of the holy God with the priest clothed in all this fine white linen, all the, the garments of holiness. And he says it's this holy God here who is this angry. He doesn't, he's not ashamed to combine the two elements and that God is just and holy and pours out His wrath in His holiness famous atheist named Bertrand Russell. He's also a brilliant mathematician. Amazing of how much Russell understood of our world. But he was once asked, you know, Bertrand, if it is true that God exists and you come before him in judgment, what are you going to say? 
And he kind of whimsically commented, you didn't give me enough evidence. <laughs> you didn't make it plain enough for me. And so he was trying to say that your judgments aren't good, that they aren't holy and they're not just if you condemn me because you didn't make it plain enough. But that's because Russell knew the Christian message and he denied it. He turned away from it. And what is being communicated to every one of us and to all the nations of the earth is that the message is abundantly clear. That the gospel is the means of being reconciled to God and gaining a world made right. That we have an inheritance in front of us. And that we need to live as if we have an inheritance. That we need to entrust ourselves to that God. And we need to live for Him in light of His mercy and grace and all His goodness to us. And so know that His, whole, his judgments are just. Now this takes us to section six, into chapter 16 where we actually come to the outpouring of the bowls. Up to this point, we've simply talked about the bowls and what they are. That they are now the answered prayers of the saints crying out for God to vindicate His people. And so God is now doing that in the outpouring of the bowls. And so join with me in reading as we begin in verse 2, reading through the end of the chapter. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify Him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of, mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. When they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Now the main point of this section is to understand that the plagues prosecute God's judgment on the pagan world and ultimately purify his fallen creation. That God is attempting to explain that the plagues are His prosecution of His holy and just judgments. But as we said, that His judgments are, are not merely retributive. They are not just repayments. But the judgments are actually intended to restore His fallen creation. And so what we find at the end of this chapter in the great shaking of the earth, you find the falling downs of the mountains, the ruins of the creation, and this is intimating the new creation that will descend out of heaven and reform this broken place into a place of wholeness and well-being and true human life in the presence of God. And so that's the direction that John is going here. But we have to deal with a lot of difficult interpretive issues to get there. And so this is what you guys have been dying uh, to do. And you're, uh, you can be ready like buzzards to pick my meat. 
uh, because I will have to, to take a stance here. But we have to understand what is the correspondence here in the book of Revelation between the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Because at this point, you've all noticed, and it's come to your attention, that there are three sets of seven in this book, and that they've been set up for this in a way, uh, set up in this way for a purpose. And so what exactly is the purpose? What is God wanting to communicate to you and me about this? And there are very many different opinions, and I'm going to give you mine, <laughs> uh, but that there is a repetition here, that that's very clear. And so what I put for you is that a significant degree of overlap exists between the groupings of seven. Now, if you noticed, if you were go back and look, that the trumpets and the bowls are almost identical. They're not identical in the intensity, but they are the same plagues. And then there's very much overlap with the seals. And so it doesn't seem that John is drawing a sharp distinction. Rather, he is giving three different visions from three different perspectives. Three different visions from three different perspectives on the same events. Okay? That is the general paradigm that Sandy has offered to us, and it's one that I support as well. And that the seven is a symbolic number that is always symbolic, typically in the Bible, for numbers of completion and perfection. And simply saying that God's wrath is being perfectly fulfilled, being perfectly poured out. So now let's look at some of the various options, though, the potential positions. One very valid option that many interpreters and commentators have given is that the seven seals go in chronological order, that they happen, and they are explicit events in history. And you'll find many commentators correlating these events in history with seal number three. I was reading one the other day that correlated one of the trumpets, or excuse me, one of the bowls with the French Revolution. And he gave a long list of evidence as to why that bowl was the French Revolution. And there's a lot of literature written in that vein. And there's a lot of time spent on that. And so we're not going to mock it, but just saying that that is one real interpretation that many of you probably in this room hold. And what this interpretation says is that the seventh seal opens up the seven trumpets. And then from the seven, once we get to the seventh trumpet, that the seventh trumpet actually opens up the seven bowls. And so we have this long string of chronological sequences that lead to the very end of things. That's one valid interpretation in the history of the Christian tradition. Then there's some people who nuance that a little bit. They say, well, there's a problem with that last view because all the sevens correspond with each other. That all the sevens in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, they speak of the final judgment of God where Jesus returns. And they use the very same language that is used. I mean, it's the exact same language that's used at the end of the book of Revelation where Christ returns. And so many interpreters see that throughout the book, John has been talking about the return of Jesus and final victory. And so that seven has to be understood as the end of all things. And so you can see the second option is that you have the seals operating throughout time. And then along with those seals and maybe a shorter framework of time, you have the trumpets operating. And then maybe in a shorter period of time, right towards the very end of history, you have the bowls beginning to be poured out. And you can see how that works there on the diagram and how it schematizes. But that means that the bowls are just before the very, very end, that they might not even be operating yet. We don't quite know. The trumpets might not even be operating yet. So we don't quite know. It's just something future. Now, I have reasons for disagreeing with those two views, um, and primarily it's because of such a high degree of repetition and that John was a pastor. And that's what I am too. And I think John was trying to speak to people about their present needs. And talking about far different future events, like the French Revolution, would have been very unhelpful for people who were being harshly persecuted, who were losing their wives and their husbands and their children because they believed in Jesus, who were losing their livelihoods because they wouldn't worship at the cult pagan shrines, who were being tossed out of cities, Mocked and ridiculed, made fun of in the courts. I think what they needed was a message of Christ's imminent victory and that his judgments are here in the world. And though they're not full yet, they one day will be. And so I believe that's what John as a pastor, with a pastor's heart for his people, 
is trying to communicate. And so I give to you here um, my own attempt at a chart uh, to explain this view that this is a cone. And what we have is God's judgments in a canonical spiral. That there's no real chronological order to them except that seven is at the very cap and the end. And so what I put here for you is that seals, trumpets, and bowls occurring throughout the time between the resurrection and Christ's return without specific reference to any one event, but without exclusion of any one particular event. All drive towards the sixth and seventh seals, which bring in the consummation with Christ's return. Now, what's very important about that is that I'm not saying that these seals do not have real fulfillments. I'm saying they do. But I'm saying that they have multiple fulfillments. That seal one might be occurring 15 times, 20 times, 2,500 times. Don't quite know that as we go from Christ's resurrection, we start down here on this wide basis, and we're circling around history, we're going through time, and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are being poured out in varying degrees. But what is clear as we move through the book of Revelation is that there is an increasing intensity to those seals, trumpets, and bowls. And they're all tightly gathering together. And you go up the spiral with all of these events happening and occurring, mutually informing one another. And then you arrive at the sixth and the seventh is the final. And that is just the view that we've been trying to present to you. And we believe that most faithfully represents a reading of John and understanding his symbolism in the way that he uses that. And so that would be our point of departure uh, for the rest of um, our time together. And. You know, let me just ask you this, though, because I have one sincere question. Oftentimes, when we begin to interpret these events and we want to say this seal has a one to one correlation and not multiple fulfillments, is that we do that from our own cultural perspective. You know, guys, the majority of the church does not live in the Western world, in North America and Europe. The majority of the church actually lives in South America and Africa now. They overwhelm us with the numbers. That that is where the center of Christendom is. And so how do you think they would interpret those seals on a one-to-one relationship? Do they find the French Revolution that important? Just as an example. You know, that the way that we interpret those seals and the way we interpret history is a part of our own culture. And we're part of Western culture. But there are many other Christians who are not. And so they're going to interpret those things different ways. And that's why I would encourage and argue with you that I believe there's multiple fulfillments of these things. They're all throughout time and all throughout history. Between Christ's resurrection and between his final coming, that these seals, bowls, and trumpets find many different fulfillments. Now, as we get to the specific outpouring of the bowls, um, many of you probably noticed just a moment ago that these are extremely similar to the plagues that were poured out on Egypt when Israel was taken up out of that land of slavery. That the Egyptians had toiled and labored under the Pharaoh, and he had made their life very harsh and bitter, and he had used them, exploited them for his own means, and that God then saw the sufferings of his people and decided to redeem them. And so that entire Exodus event becomes a type for us, that we are now God's community living in exile, And that we are in bondage under the present world order that's opposed to him. And that God is now sending his judgments. And I believe that these judgments are active right now. In very multiple ways and in varying different degrees. But they are active. And we find these plagues in our world active right now. Leading up to that one final plague. Which will be Christ's return. Where he brings all into judgment and he rescues his people. But the plagues of Egypt are a type for us. They are an example. And if you look at Deuteronomy 7.15, this is particularly important uh, for us. It says, And the Lord will take away from you all sickness, and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he afflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you. Now that was Old Testament Israel's understanding of what God would do against her enemies. That God would lay the plagues of Egypt. That was a type. It was a judgment type. He would lay all those plagues on anyone who opposed Israel as they served God faithfully. And what we have now, John, the pastor and theologian, 
understanding that that had now been fulfilled for the church. That the church is the new Israel. And that God was now pouring out the plagues. God was pouring out His wrath against those who opposed His true people. And so we find the fulfillment of this as we work through these different bowls. Um, Now, the first five bowls uh, share many similarities. And I would put them, verses 2 through 11, under this general category. That they challenge the earthly security. uh, The earthly security is lost for the pagans due to idolatry and persecution of the church. That God becomes very angry and grows in His holy wrath because of idolatry and the persecution of His people. That these people who were opposed to the church, that they worshipped things that were less than the Creator. And you want to know why God is so steamed about it? One, it robs Him of His own glory that's due to Him. But two, that idolatry robs us of our own glory. Because God created us in His image in His very image, to worship Him. And that when we worship an idol, we bow down to something that's part of the creation. And the psalmist so wisely says, in my own translation, that what we worship, we become. (laughs) And when we bow down to something less than what we were intended to bow down to, we become something less than God intended us to be. And so we've made a mockery of what God intended us to be. And that's the great frivolity of idolatry. That we become something less than what God designed us to be and that we lose our dignity and we lose the sense of who we are. That what it means to truly be Christian, what it means to truly be human, is to be Christian. That God restores us as to what we are intended to be. And that's the great tragedy of idolatry. And so it breaks God's heart and it also greatly offends Him because we deny His purposes and rob Him of His glory. And so God is angry about idolatry And then the persecution of the church. Of course he's angry. The testimony of Jesus. The people who have been bought by grace, redeemed by Christ's work on the cross. And the nations make mockery of it. The Roman Empire at this point was particularly good at it. They had become quite famous for the persecutions of the church. And they accused the Christians of several things. The first of those is what they said that the Christians were actually atheists. One of the one of the strangest uh, critiques of Christianity that I've ever heard that the Christians were actually atheists because they didn't bow down at the pagan shrines and they didn't worship the gods of the state. And so they were not good citizens. They were not good patriots. They were atheists. And then they also were accused of being cannibalist, that they fed on the flesh of a man named Jesus. They're eating dead people. And so with all these accusations of cannibalism and also of atheism, the Roman government began to clamp down, thinking that these people were destructive and dangerous. They clamped down and began to hunker down on them in order that they would destroy them, wipe them out, remove them from society and from the scourge. And God is angered by that. And the same things operate in our world today. Idolatry though we typically don't find too many wooden shrines around every once in a while. But in East Memphis, the idols take on a different character. But they're still of the created order. The fundamental idol of our society, it's been said, is the worship of the self. And that we think life exists for our own needs. And that God is opposed to believing that life exists for our own needs. That worship before the idol of ourselves is equally wicked is worship of the idol Baal or Buddha or Muhammad, that all are equally wicked. And so we can't just cast an eye at those who worship in other religions and call them the godless pagans. That we have to look very carefully at ourselves too and our Western society and the gods that we tend to worship and exalt even though they have a different nature. And so you find these bowls being poured out here. I'm not going to go into detail on each of these. I've tried to explain them. But God is responding to the false worship and the persecution. Um, And I would say that these are active and present in bringing judgment. And this is why Paul says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed. He didn't say it is to be revealed. He didn't say it just has been revealed. 
He says it is being revealed. It's present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed in our world. And that's what these bowls are. They're being revealed in the wrath of God. And yet there is some wrath yet to come. Now, what is the benefit or whose benefit do these judgments exist for? And let me just say this, that these judgments are on the unbelieving of the world. But there's two different tracks you can take in understanding this. And I'll commend one to you. That when it comes to God's judgment of the unbelieving world, that we can take the track of saying that happened and it's because of this sin. We can take that track of the unbelieving world and we can then put that in their face and say if you worship the true God, then this wouldn't have happened. That's one track. And we have examples uh, in our current culture of that happening. Uh, with, the, with the September 11th tragedy, there were some Christian leaders who then called out uh, New York City for all its ungodliness. And that was a track they took. But I want to ask you to remember who this was written for. This was a Christian audience. These were Christian churches who were suffering persecution. And so they were told about these judgments to come. Not to rub it in the face of the pagans, but to minister comfort and consolation into the heart of the Christian. That God is just, that God is good, and God will make good on His plan to redeem the world. That God is just, that God is good, and He will make good on His plan to redeem the world. And so they were a consolation. They were a sign of comfort for the Christian. And that's where I'd say that we need to lean on this. It's not saying that we don't ever speak to the pagan world and say that they are under the wrath of God. Not at all. We do say that. But we need to understand when God's judgments come that the Christian is always to respond mercifully. And that is what's so beautiful about the Indonesian relief effort. Areas of the world that have long denied the gospel and have turned against it. But yet the Christians are being merciful. They're being kind and they're coming in to give even their enemies aid. And that's what God calls us to. Not to rub it in their face and tell them, aha, he got you. (laughs) That's not our trajectory at all. But we're to receive comfort from this and we're to be merciful to those who are suffering. And so that's the benefit of knowing these judgments. And then finally, when we come to the last two bowls, the sixth bowl, we have a drive towards the battle of Armageddon. And it's amazing to me the preeminence that this one reference has received in the interpretation of this entire book and of all of apocalyptic literature. It appears here once, Armageddon, the hill of Megiddo, which is about a two-day walk north of Jerusalem. And there's all this literature that talks about the battle of Armageddon and the great future that it was going to be and that that is when God will crush all the nations in this literal battle on literal Israel's soil. And so we have a lot of Christians very concerned about the nation of Israel. And following our interpretive framework that we've given you, that we really do believe that there is no real battle to happen on this little plain in Israel. That what John is speaking of is figurative. There is a real battle. But the battle scene is the world. And that's because the bowl was poured out on the river Euphrates. which The river Euphrates was the great river that protected the big city of Babylon, which was the seen as the prototype of evil in the world. And Cyrus, the king, who came from Persia, when he conquered the city of Babylon, he redirected the river Euphrates. It was amazing. He dammed it up and redirected it. And all of a sudden, the river Euphrates dried up. And in 539, Cyrus marched into Babylon uncontested. He waltzed in. He took control of the major center of the world And so this image of the sixth bowl being poured out and drying up the Euphrates so that the kings of the east can come to this battle in Armageddon is a prototype. It's symbolic about what God is doing. Because in 539, when Cyrus took control of the city of Babylon, who was released from Babylon to return to their homeland? God's people. And in 538, the Israelites returned from exile. And they went back to Jerusalem. And so his judgment on Babylon was salvation for his people. His judgments against this wicked city had become salvation. And that is what is being communicated once again 
when all the kings of the earth are assembled together in Megiddo, which was a great place to do war, and everyone knew that that just meant a great conflict, that God's judgment would be salvation for His people. And so I would say that a, uh, a symbolic reading is a more literal reading of the text here. That that is a true reading of Scripture. Not trying to sidestep any issues. But that is a true and literal reading of the text. And so then finally when we come to the seventh bowl, the judgments reach their goal when God says it is done. It is done. Babylon, the sinful world order, is destroyed. Okay, that's what Babylon stands for. It's just the sinful world order. All the world that's arrayed against God. However, the shaking destroys the old order in order to bring in a new. That God destroys the nations of this world, the old world order, with a massive earthquake. His judgment is apparent. And He rips the world apart. But as we've discussed, and the burden of this entire lesson is to impress upon you, that the judgments of God upon the pagan world are the salvation of the church and all those who truly profess Jesus Christ. Because, gentlemen, it's very plain that there is a day of judgment to come. That God will enter into judgment with all the nations of the earth. And He will shake it. But the great news for the Christian is that there was a past day of judgment. And that these plagues that are to be poured out on the nations, that these plagues were actually poured out on Jesus Christ. The great plague of darkness that took the firstborn son from the Pharaoh of Egypt. Well, when Jesus was on the cross, darkness covered the entire land. And that the plague of God fell upon His head. And that God lost His firstborn. He was exiled on our behalf. And so the judgments of God are alleviated by Jesus Christ. And so we have a great humility when reading about these judgments. Because we know that we've been saved only by Jesus and only through Him. And that we look mercifully upon those who oppose us. And we plead with them, asking that they repent and not harden their hearts, that they would be restored. So let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for Your Word and we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us. That Your judgments that You visit on the unbelieving world, that they are the salvation of Your people. And so we long for You to come and make this world right. We ask that the world would respond to Your judgments in repentance. And we ask, God, that Your judgments would give us great consolation and comfort that You are the One who reigns and rules. And Lord Jesus, You will never forsake Your people. You cannot forsake us because we have Your righteousness. And so we rejoice in these things and we take great comfort and hope. We pray that this will be driven into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.